two weeks for Ruth. Two, we'll do two chapters this week, two next week, and then we'll do Advent. Lots of revelation. Is that what you want to talk about? Man, you don't want to talk about that. You've got to bring charts and graphs, and I'll offend half of you every week because we will differ and it won't work. A couple of things. While Casey and Evan were talking, I was thinking, they said 10% of missionaries are in this 1040 window. We have eight long-term missionary families, and we've got four in that window. And what that made me think about was how important it is to make sure we're praying. If you don't know the missionary families that we've got, we've got eight, again, eight families who consider Stonebridge their home church who are full-time missionaries. Two of them are actually stationed here. Uh, ask. We, you need to be praying for them. We've got folks in Cambodia, North Africa, China, and Turkey, and all of those countries are in that 1040 window. We have others as well, but how important it is to make sure. Listening to them talk about that area made me think uh, how important it is for us to be praying for them. Uh, if you're on the outside wall, if you can reach under your seat, there's a little basket. Pass that basket down would be great. If you're a guest, we'd love for you to pull that, pull out one of those cards and fill it out. It's a guest card. It lets us know that you are here. It allows us to say thank you. On your way out the door, there's a room to your right, the Welcome Center. I'll be in there. And if you want to stop in and hand me that card, that would be great. And give me a chance to shake your hand and tell you, again, thanks for being here. Uh, two announcements. One, we've got a family dinner this Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, just pick whichever day works for you. If you consider Stonebridge your home church, we would love for you to come. It's a potluck, so bring some food. You can sign up either in the Welcome Center or online. We'll be looking back a little bit at where we've been and looking forward at some opportunities that we've got uh, moving ahead with Advent and Christmas. So we'd love for you to come. It's a great opportunity to be together as a family. Last week I mentioned this foster family a dinner that we're going to do here in here. We're, ho- we're hoping to host somewhere between 25 and 30 foster families. We're working with a group called Faith Bridge, and so we're going to give them a dinner on December 18th. You can mark that on your calendar, December 18th. Uh, we'll be giving more information on exactly how you can help as it gets closer to the time. But one thing you can do, the way we're going to pay for this dinner, and hopefully not just pay for the dinner, but be able to get some stuff for the kids, is Judd and Carrie Thompson, who've run a Christmas tree lot the past two years, are going to run one this year, and all of the proceeds are going to go to this dinner. So it's going to be open, I think, the, about five days after Thanksgiving, the Friday through, I think it's Tuesday after Thanksgiving. All these details are in the newsletter. I just want to encourage you, if you are a live tree person, go buy Christmas tree from Judd and Carrie. And again, all of that money is going to come to support this dinner. Our hope, it's not just to give the parents a nice meal, but to be able to do some things for and with their children. Uh, they're one of the ways to keep the cost down on the lot so there's more, fit, more money uh, for this dinner is volunteers. And so there's some opportunities for you to serve. If you happen to eat a bit too much on Thanksgiving, then your penance can be lugging trees um, the few days after that. There's other things you can do. But um, you can see Judd and Carrie, y'all raise your hand there in the back. If you want to connect with them on how you can help, please do. Or you can see Kim and she can help direct you uh, in the right way moving forward. So that's the right after Thanksgiving, buy a tree from Judd and Carrie, and then December 18th in here for this foster family dinner. Uh, real quick before we jump into Ruth, it is Mission Sunday. We're pushing our trips for 2015. One of the questions we get is why? Why do short-term missions? It's a lot of money for a short, for just one week. Couldn't that money be better used elsewhere? What's the impact? I don't get why we do those things. Is that just for certain 
Christians or certain people, that's kind of their thing. Some people like to work with students. Some people like to go on mission trips. How does that impact me? Uh, My encouragement to you for us, the way we see short-term missions is it helps you learn to live like a missionary, and that's what we want for you. We want you to live your life wherever you are like a missionary. Being a missionary is not a matter of moving. Being a missionary is a function of whose you are. God is ascending God. He calls us to himself, and then he sends us out. That is the missionary function. The word missionary just means sent one. If you're a Christian, then you're a sent one. God is sending you somewhere. He may not be sending you to the 1040 window. That's fine. He may be sending you somewhere within this community. For most of you, the sending is going to be within this community. It's a very small percentage, less than 5% of the total Christian population is called to move overseas. But that doesn't mean that we're not called to be missionaries. Again, the idea of being a missionary is much more about being sent than it is moving. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have been sent somewhere. Being on a short-term trip, it's like a lab. If you ever had a lab in high school or college, that's what it is. You get lots of book learning in here. We talk a lot. Being on a mission trip, it's a week to practice. It's a field experience. It's a lab environment where you're not going to have family responsibilities, you're not going to have household responsibilities, and you're not going to have work responsibilities. And you can focus for a week on what does it look like for me to live my life as a missionary. And for many of you, it will be easier in Guatemala. It will be easier in Nicaragua because you won't have all of these other things pulling at you. You, You're not already pigeonholed into certain roles and responsibilities, and you won't have all this stuff tugging at your time. And so for a week, you can live in the freedom of what does it mean for me to be a missionary. And then when you come back from that trip, you'll continue to meet with your team for two or three times, and they'll work on, okay, what, what, how can we implement this? What's something that you can pull from your week away that you can begin to implement in your life? Now, that's the point for us. The point is God wants us all to live like missionaries, and going on a short-term trip is a great environment for practicing that. So then when you come back, it's a little bit easier. You've got your feet wet a little bit. You've stretched your legs as a missionary, and it will be easier for you to think through how does it, what does it look like for me to do this moving forward. So those are the things I want you thinking about. I don't want you saying no. If you're like, that's not me, don't say no today. you got till December 21st. I just want you to pray and ask the Lord, are you calling me? If the, if the cost scares you, don't worry about that. We've had hundreds of missionaries leave here, short-term people. I can think of either zero or one who didn't have the money. Everybody else, it, it, God just, he takes care of it. So don't let the money scare you, and don't let, like what David was saying, don't let the location scare you. Let's just give God a chance. For many, It might not be the time for you, but I want you to give God a chance to move you in that direction with the thought in mind that this is about your spiritual development. This is going to help you learn to live your life as a sent one in Kennesaw or Marietta much more effectively than you currently are. Good? All right, Ruth. We fast forward like six or 700 years from last week. We closed Genesis last week. Joseph, Jacob dies, Joseph, Joseph dies. Now we're going to skip ahead six or 700 years. Let me give you a little background on what's been happening just to get you up to speed. So Genesis, we said, is God's forming a people for himself. And then he wants that people, use that people to be a blessing to the nations. That whole idea, he calls and he sends. We see that in Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, really the same idea. 
from Genesis 50 to Exodus 1. That's one page in your Bible. That's 400 years of history that we don't know a ton about other than the nation grew exponentially. From 70 men who went to Egypt to 603,550 men who leave. It's about, the nation's about 2 million people by the time of Exodus. The Israelites are enslaved by a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. Remember, Joseph was this great guy. He helped out the Egyptians. But over the course of 400 years, some guys came to power who didn't know him. They're threatened by the Hebrews, and so they enslave them. Then God raises up Moses, you've heard of him, to deliver the Israelites. That's the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea. When they leave Egypt, they're supposed to go into the promised land, this land that God has for them. But they get scared. They take, they, they send some spies into the land. Let's see how it looks. Two guys say, man, we can do this. We can do this. And ten of them say, no way. They're like, they make us look like grasshoppers, not interested. And so the people vote to, to not go, and God is ticked. And he says, as judgment for this, you're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and all of the adults are going to die. The only guys who are making it through are Joshua and Caleb, because they're the only ones who agreed to say, yes, we can do this. And then all of your kids are going to get to inherit the land, but none of y'all are going to get to. During this time, God forms the covenant, the old covenant, you've heard of that, with the Israelites. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. The Ten Commandments are a part of that. You can see all that in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And Deuteronomy, they, they approach the land. The 40 years is coming to an end. They prepare, hey, we're going to take this land. Moses dies. Then Joshua is about Joshua, who's Moses' successor. They enter the land, they drive out all the inhabitants of the land, and they split it up. It's the second half of Joshua is just a bunch of, it's like surveying. It's a whole bunch of property that they're dividing up. Your tribe gets this, and all those 12 tribes that we've been looking at each get their dirt. Then you move into Judges, which to me is the most dreadful book in the entire, it's awful. It's awful. You'll have to take a bath after you read it. The time it judges, it's a pot, there's a strong... Um, rebellion, there's wickedness, there's apostasy that's renouncing your faith. It's just, let me, here, let me give you a little picture. This is Judges 2. This is important because Ruth is set in the time of Judges. And so Judges is this just spiritual, moral, ethical wasteland. And then you've got Ruth. It's like she's this beacon of light in the middle of all of this darkness. Here is how Judges, uh, here's how the time of Judges is described at the beginning of the book. After that whole generation, so that's after Joshua and all of his guys, after they die, have been gathered up to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals, those are false gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, those are other false gods. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. So hear that. God has gone from fighting for the Israelites to fighting against them. That's how wicked they are. It's not only that he's not helping them anymore, he's working to have to, he's judging them. It's not why it's called judges, but that's what's going on. He's allowing them to be captured, he's allowing them to be plundered because they are so wicked. Then the Lord raised up judges. You can think of, think of leaders, not like a legal judge, like a, a leader. 
Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. They would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. So you hear that. So these people are wicked. They're rebelling against the Lord. Then they groan under their oppression. God in his compassion raises up a leader, Samson, Gideon, Deborah, to deliver them. And for as long as that person's leading, they can kind of keep it on the road. And then as soon as that person dies, they start the death spiral again. And they want, they're more wicked the second time around than they were the first. And more wicked the third time around than they were the second. Judges closes with this statement. Everyone did as he saw fit. That summarizes the morals and the ethics of the, during the time of Judges. Everybody did how they saw fit. And in the midst of that, we're going to look at Ruth. Today we're going to see the three main characters, Naomi, her daughter-in-law Ruth, and a male relative named Boaz. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Ruth is the title character, but the story is about Naomi. It's all about her moving from being full to empty to full again. And we'll see the way it wraps up next week. Ruth and Boaz are the primary actors. They do all the work, but the story is really about Naomi. And so as we're reading chapter 1 and chapter 2, I want you listening for what can you tell me about Naomi? What do you see in her heart? relative to her circumstances? How is she perceiving the things going on in her life? And how is she perceiving God's um, activity or responsibility for, that, for the things that are going on in her life? Because she's the one that we want to focus on. So I'm going to, the story's obviously very well told. I'm not going to talk a ton. I'm just going to read through chapter 1, and then uh, I'll make a few comments in chapter 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I am going to pause there because this is what's really important. This is the setup for everything that comes after it. Naomi means pleasant, and at the beginning, those first few verses, she's full. She has a husband and she has two sons. In this time period, a woman's well-being was tied to the men in her life. First to her father until she was married, then to her husband and then to her sons. That was the kind of the progression. Father, husband, son. And as long as a woman had those men in her life, she was considered blessed and she was taken care of. If she did not have those, she was incredibly vulnerable to all kinds of bad things happening. And her prospects were very, very, very limited. That's hard for us to grasp in the society that we live in. But for where Naomi lived, everything had to do with the men in her life. And so she starts, husband and two sons. Things are going well. There's a famine that's common in the Bible. Uh, when there is a famine, a lot of times people will move. They'll move to a region that's not affected. Moab is an area, um, those guys are descendants of Lot, who's Abraham's nephew. There's some hostility there. 
there's some kinship, but there's a lot of hostility between the Israelites and the Moabites that doesn't necessarily play into our story other than it makes Ruth a very unlikely heroine because of where she comes from. It, they, there, were fault, there were other gods that were worshipped in Moab, and again, there was no love lost between these two groups of people. So sometime during her ten years, her husband dies. She marries her two sons to local women. She can't get uh, Hebrew husbands for them because she's not living in the land of Israel any longer. And so they, they marry local women, and then her children die. And they don't leave her any children. So now she's sunk. She doesn't, her dad's no, husband no, sons no, grandsons no. She's got nobody when the, uh, at the end of verse 5. Her prospects are no good. I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It's pretty straightforward, but just to be clear, famine's lifting in the promised land in Israel. Naomi's ready to go home. Her daughters-in-law say, we're going to come with you. And she says, no, I've got nothing for you. I'm not married, so I don't have a husband who can take care of you. I don't have any sons for you to marry. If I had boys tonight, are you really going to wait around 30 years for them to get old enough to marry? No. Go home. There's, I've got nothing to offer you at all. And Orpah says, okay. And there's nothing. She's not being selfish. She's not wicked. She's not evil. She's not unethical. Her mother-in-law has released her and says, go home. I want you to be happy. I want God to provide you with another husband. And I can't do that. I've got, no, got no sons left for you. So you go back home and let God take care of you there. And so Orpah leaves. And then Ruth gives this fierce declaration of commitment. You may have heard those verses used in a wedding before. It's interesting. Those are things that husbands and wives say to each other. Not many of us say those things to our mother-in-law. And that's who Ruth, that's who she said it to. She said that to her mother-in-law. I'm not going anywhere. 
I'm sticking with you. And I want you to recognize she's giving up everything. She's leaving her parents. She's leaving her home country. Any sense of security, safety, protection, provision she's got is located in her dad's house. And she is leaving all of that. And it's not temporary. She's saying, Naomi, I'm sticking with you. And here's what Naomi has to offer her. Nothing. Not one thing. She has nothing to offer. It's been 10 years since she's been home. So she still has property under her husband's name. It hadn't been worked for 10 years. Who knows what the state of it is. She's got no money and she has no prospects. Ruth knows all of that and says, I'm coming anyway. It's it's a a fierce declaration. It says when, when Naomi realizes her determination to stay, she quits asking her, to leave. This isn't emotionalism, it's not nostalgic, it's not sentimental, it's not romantic. It's this deep and fierce commitment that says, I'm sticking with you. And so Naomi says, let's go. So they go home and all the women of the town are like, Naomi's back. It's been 10 years. She left with a husband. She left with two sons. What's she going to come back with? And she comes back with nothing. What does she say? I left full. I came back empty. Don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitter. I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm bitter. Why? Because God has afflicted me. The Lord has caused all this to happen. I went away full and God has taken away what was mine. We do see a hint of hope at the end. She leaves because of a famine and she comes back at harvest time. And so there's some thinking. Maybe things are going to break Naomi's way. Real, um, chapter 2. Let me introduce you to Boaz, and then I'll just read the rest of the chapter. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We'll talk more about him next week, but it's very significant that she has a male in her family. Again, everything at this time is tied to men, and so that the fact that there's still a man who's related to her husband gives her some hope. There's a chance that maybe things can break. Her way. I'll read the rest of the chapter now. I think you can follow along uh, pretty easily. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you're thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground and asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, Ruth said. You put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. 
When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephath. That's 30 pounds. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she'd eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. God has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close redeemer, or excuse me, our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Your Bible might say kinsman redeemer. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her, daughter-in-law, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So just to kind of wrap that up, what you have there, Ruth makes a very, very bold uh, request. I don't know if Naomi's just sitting under her covers watching TV all day because she's so depressed. There's nothing happening. They've had 10 years without working the land. There's no food. There's no money. And there's no hope for either. Again, I don't know Naomi's state. She seems pretty upset. And Ruth says, let me go to work. Now remember, this is a time when everyone saw as they did fit. Read Judges and you'll see what happens to women who are unattached. It is not pretty. And Ruth boldly says, let me go to work. She's putting herself at huge risk saying, let me go do this. And so she goes to work. And the Bible says, as it turns out, that's the phrase, we know the Lord's at work orchestrating some of these circumstances. She winds up in this field of a man named Boaz who's related to, to Elimelech. She doesn't know that. It's just where she's working. Now, there are Old Testament laws for gleaning, for how you harvest. Everybody has land, but at times people are poor and their harvest doesn't come in or they lose their land. And so what God has set up for the community is here's how you harvest your crops. You leave some. You leave some behind for people who are poor. This is just two examples. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the edges of your field. When you're harvesting and you overlook a sheep, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. What God is saying is don't get it all. Leave some for the poor. Leave some for the widow. Leave some for the alien, the stranger among you. Don't pick it clean. There's some dignity there for people who are struggling. Let them, they can still work for their food. They can go get it. But in order for them to go get it, you've got to leave some behind. If those of you who maybe work with people who are impoverished, there might be something there for you in terms of thinking that through. Even some of you who may own your own businesses, there may be something there in terms of thinking it through. What does it look like for you to leave some behind for other people? So Ruth, taking advantage of those laws, goes and gleans. And again, a very dangerous thing for her as a woman unattached in the field with a bunch of men. Boaz notices her. Who is that? It's Ruth. Her reputation has preceded her. And so he draws her in very graciously and kindly. He feeds her lunch, and she has so much lunch, she leaves some, brings some home to her mother-in-law. She's able in one day to come back with 30 pounds of wheat. Like, how much does wheat weigh? Not much. And she gets, she gets 30 pounds in one day after she's winnowed it. That's how well Boaz treats her. 
And Naomi's shocked. She's like, how, how in the world did you bring back this much food? Who took care of you? This is, more, this is not normal. Somebody has blessed you to be able to do that. And she says, Boaz, when we begin to see a hint of something change in Naomi, God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and to the dead. We'll look next week at how the story wraps up. Some of you may already know that. But what does it mean for us today? Uh, again, we're in the middle of the story. It's easy to jump ahead and see how everything works out for Naomi. But I want us to make sure we stay at the, at, in chapter 2. And where we are in chapter 2 is Naomi's a, still a bit of a mess. She's still in famine. There's some hope for her. But she's gone from full to empty and she hasn't been refilled yet. We'll see that next week. And I do believe there are people here today and you're where she is. You're, there's famine in your life. You're empty in a lot of ways. And there's some things that we can learn from Naomi. Two things chiefly, Alex, if you'll show that slide. There's two things that Naomi holds on to in the midst of all of this. They're not necessarily contrasting, but I think in our hearts they wind up being intention for us. She's honest and she maintains her faith. So honest. What does she say? The Lord's hand's gone out against me. Call me bitter because the Almighty's made my life bitter. I went away full. The Lord's brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. In your Bible, if you see capital L-O-R-D, where all of them are capitalized, that's the personal name for God, Yahweh. So when she's saying Lord, and you see it written like that, that's a personal statement. Him, the, we would say the Father of Jesus is doing this to me. It's his responsibility. I don't know if she's saying he's the primary cause or just he's sovereign and he could have fixed it and he didn't. But she sees her circumstances as attributable to God, to Yahweh, to this personal God that she has. Very honest statements from her. If you're Naomi, you will be at some point. If you're Naomi, we have to learn how to be honest with the Lord as well. And for most of us, we're not comfortable. We either we feel like, well, if I share that kind of stuff, it's disrespectful, it's not reverent. I think there's a part of us that think God's he might throw lightning bolts at us. If we do that, it's like you don't poke a bear. And so we we either take our ball and go home, we withdraw from God and pout, or we kind of we we Christian cliche our way through difficult times. But very few of us have enough trust in our relationships as sons or daughters to speak that way about God. Sometimes we go into PR mode and we want to make sure everybody knows God, it's okay. God hasn't, he's, Naomi doesn't do any of that. She says, I went away full, I've come back empty, and it's because the Lord has afflicted me. In a lot of ways, Naomi is a female Job. You remember that story in the Old Testament. You have this person who just seems to be minding their own business. They seem righteous as far as we can tell. And everything they have gets stripped away from them. And they're left going, what, 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 why? What ha- I don't get it. In Job, it's 40, we get the condensed version in Ruth. Job is 42 chapters and 38 of them is this back and forth between Job and his friends trying to figure out what's going on in Job is saying, I want to take God to court. I want to prove that I hadn't done anything wrong. If he's got a charge against me, let him bring it. And then at the very end, God shows up and says, are are you sure you want to do that? Were you here when I started all this? No. Can you stand before me? No. Then be quiet. 
There are things going on that you don't understand. And we see some of that playing out here in Ruth. Naomi is going, all of these bad things are happening. She's basically saying to God, you're killing me. You could have stopped this. You could prevent it. You could fix it. You're not doing any of these things. My life is in shambles. You're killing me. There's a depth of honesty that she has. It's interesting, that word for afflicted means testify against. God has testified against me. It reminds us of Job in this legal proceeding, and that's where she finds herself. And for us, again, my encouragement, if you're Naomi, you've got to figure out what does it look like to be honest with God about your circumstances. How can you do that? This, this list, Alex, you show that list of psalms. These are called psalms of lament. For many of us, we're not comfortable with the vocabulary of, of making it sound like we're blaming God or we're not happy with God. That makes us very uncomfortable. Read these and put yourself in them. When it says I, you say I. Use your name. And that will begin to give you a vocabulary. It's all inspired by God so you don't have to worry about lightning bolts. It's all inspired by him. And so you can use these prayers back to him to express your frustration and your concern and your disappointment and your anger and all of those things regarding your circumstances. I'm not asking you or encouraging you to throw a temper tantrum. What I'm asking and encouraging and challenging is for you to be honest. God lives in reality, and if you don't bring these things honestly before him, then there's nothing he can do about it. At some point, you have to say, I trust you enough as a son or daughter to know I can, I can do this. I can say, I went away full and I came back empty, and it's because of you. I'm not saying you're the direct cause. You may be, but you definitely could have done something about it, and you haven't. Or you didn't. You're killing me. And the second thing, if you'll go back one, Alex. Even as Naomi is doing all of those things, she maintains her faith. Look what she says in chapter 1, verse 8. May the Lord show kindness to you. That word kindness is way stronger than being nice. The word underneath it is covenant love. You don't care. The Hebrew is hesed. It's a, very, uh, it's a word used throughout the Old Testament to describe the way God treats us. It's the key way. If you want to know one word, how does God treat us? It's that word kindness, covenant love. Covenant, faithful, committed, love, doing what's best for us regardless of personal cost. May the Lord show his covenant love to you. It's probably translated kindness because she's speaking to people who at this point aren't in relationship with God. As you've shown to me, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of your husband. So even as she can say, God, you're killing me. She can say to her daughters-in-law, he will be good to you. If you want kindness, if you want rest, he's the one that can provide it. They worship this God in Moab called Chemosh. He's a false God. And what Naomi is saying is, you don't, he's not going to help you. It's the personal name of God. You see it all capitalized there. Yahweh, he's the one who will take care of you. So even as she can say, my life is bitter because of God, he's the source of kindness and rest for you. In chapter, or chapter 2, verse 20, we see this maybe Stated the most clearly, God is not showing kindness, same word, his covenant love, to the living and the dead. So even while Naomi's griping, she's also maintaining faith for us. We see those things diverging, moving in two different ways. Naomi holds them both together in her heart. Some of you have teenagers. All of you have been teenagers. It's the, when your kid says, you're ruining my life, and ten minutes later says, can you give me twenty bucks? That's it. That's it. That's the relational piece for us. We've got to get to a point where we can say, God, you're killing me. 
as I look at my circumstances, I don't get it. How hard is it? This is not hard. How hard is it that for you to, I'm married. How hard is it for us to have a baby? I'm single. I want to be married. How hard is it for you to bring somebody into my life? I'm miserable on my job. How hard is it for you to move me out or knock my boss off? How hard is that? Not. And even as I can say, you're killing me. You're ruining my life. I can say, I need 20 bucks. You're the source. You're it. If there's going to be peace in my joy, it's you. I've got to figure out, how do I hold on to both of those things? If you're Naomi this morning, here's my challenge. What does it look like for you to be honest? It's going to have to do with, be with it's, it's what you say. It's how you pray. What does it look like for you to be honest? And what does it look like for you to maintain trust and faith moving forward? Real quick, we'll look at Ruth more next week. But just to say, because this is kind of our mission Sunday, you see Ruth in a lot of ways as a quintessential missionary. She leaves behind everything. Everything she knows, everything that's comfortable to her, everything that's supporting her. And she goes with Naomi, who has nothing to offer. It's Philippians 2, Jesus, who being in very nature God, considered, or being, excuse me. It's Philippians 2 where you have Jesus, Paul talking about Jesus saying he's God. He's equal with God in every way. And he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he gave up all of that to come be with us. That's... We see a picture of that here with Ruth. Leaves everything behind in order to say yes to serving Naomi, who has nothing to offer her. For all of us, we're missionaries. We're all sent. And I want to ask you, who's Naomi in your life? It may be an individual. It may be a group. I was thinking about the pauses. I remember when they got back from Turkey, and I was at the first time they didn't go to Turkey, when they got back from the Middle East the first time. I was like, tell me about it. Tell me what happened. The only story I can remember, because this, I can't, I don't know what hell is, but this would be hell for me. My personal hell. A Turkish bath. Y'all know what that is? You know Who? Anybody have one? Yeah, I thought so. So here's what you do. You go into this public bathhouse in your birthday suit. Boys one way, girls one way. Then you walk in and somebody else gives you a bath. Does that make any sense? I'm a man, and I'm going to let some other man give me a bath in a public bath. I don't understand. I don't get it. If I'm a missionary to that area, the first thing I'm doing is I'm giving everybody a bathtub. Here's God's gift to you. A bathtub in your house. I don't know if it's because they're white and their skin, maybe, you know, it's paler than Middle Eastern skin. But they scrubbed us till we were red. What about that is fun? For some of us, when we think missionary, that's what we think. Turkish bathhouse, eating slimy food, being sick all the time. It's this massive, no, very few of you are going to move. Every one of you has been sent. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been sent somewhere. There's a Naomi for you. Think about your household. I'm not talking about your nuclear family. That concept is foreign to the Bible. Your household, Jacob has 70. Who are your people? Who's your tribe? Is there a Naomi in there? Is there someone who's desolate? Is there someone who's despairing? Is there someone who's depressed? Is there someone who would say, I'm bitter. I'm not pleasant. Don't call me sweet and don't call me pleasant. I'm bitter. You have that person in your mind. It may be a group of people. 
What does it look like for you to be Ruth to them? What does it look like for you to say, I'm going to leave behind all of this stuff that's comfortable to me. And I'm going to give myself to your good, even though you've got nothing to offer me. That's what it looks like to be a missionary. Again, very, very few of you are going to pick up and move. Every one of you has been sent. My encouragement, if you're not Naomi this morning, if you say, that doesn't resonate, that's not where I am, then you're Ruth. And my encouragement to you is, who's Naomi in your life? Who's the one, who are the ones that he's sending you to? We'll close real quick by, this is Psalm 23. You know this Psalm, Boaz, in a lot of ways, functions as Jesus. Alex, if you'll show that last slide, please. In a lot of ways, Boaz, to me, fills the role of Jesus. We'll look at him more next week. But you can see what he does. This is what he offers Ruth through his words. He offers her relationship. He offers her provision, protection. You're my daughter. Don't go away. Come over here. Relationship. Again, she's left behind her whole family. And Boaz says, you've got a new one here. Provision. Don't glean in another field. Watch the field. Follow along. Drink from these jars. Eat this bread. Pull out sheaves for her. He's providing for her. And then protection. I told the men not to touch you. Again, in that context, that means exactly what you think it means. And don't reprimand or rebuke her. He offers her, Boaz, relationship, protection, provision. It sounds like a good shepherd. That's what they do. John 10, I know my sheep and they know me. That's what Jesus says about us. He provides everything that we need. He protects us. As We'll read Psalm 23 and you'll hear it. This is my... Encouragement as we close. If you're Naomi, if you're Ruth, that's the offer from Jesus for you. What do you need? Relationship, protection, provision. You have a good shepherd who longs to give it to you. You can close your eyes and listen to this psalm. It's familiar to many of you. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Is that a true statement for you? Can you this morning say, Jesus is my shepherd. I don't lack anything. Jesus makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus leads me beside quiet waters. Jesus refreshes my soul. Jesus guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you, Jesus, are with me. Your rod, Jesus, and your staff, Jesus, they comfort me. Jesus, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness, Jesus, and your love, Jesus, will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in your house forever. God, my prayers for every man and woman in this room, whether they feel near or far, that they would know the reality of this psalm. If they're Naomi, if they're Ruth, if they say I'm neither, none of it connects to me. God, I pray they would know themselves as your sheep and you as their good shepherd. Think about that image throughout the New Testament that you go after those who've wandered away. If there are any wanderers here this morning, God, would you pursue them with your spirit? Would you reveal yourself to them as a good shepherd? You gave up your life for the sheep. I pray for those who are wrestling and struggling and wondering, do you care? Would you remind them that they don't, you do, and they don't even have to just take your word for it. They can look at the cross. And they can see how much. God, I pray for those who are struggling. They would say, I'm lacking some things. One, would they be honest in that spot? And say, God, you're killing me here. You're killing me. 
you're ruining my life in this spot. And then would they invite you in to that place in the midst of that? Would they maintain faith and trust, saying, you're killing me. You're ruining my life. And you're the source of all good things. God, show our Naomi's this morning what it looks like to maintain their faith, even as circumstances are falling apart. And I pray for our Ruths who are in here. God, would you encourage us and enable us and embolden us to give our lives on behalf of others, God. But we say, yeah, you've called me, and I want you to send me as well. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with one song of worship. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you've got going on. I would say particularly if that Naomi thing is in you, I would love to pray with you about that. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front, and uh, y'all can stand and bow will dismiss us when this song's over.